This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Listen up. Ah, Hollywood. Nothing goes further than a big celebrity-studded movie to grab your pop culture attention and to inspire countless articles and think pieces about a particular topic. A really solid blockbuster can raise a niche book to bestseller status or inspire hopeful imitators, and it can lead to renewed interest in a certain time period or subject matter. In the case of the 2014 film The Monuments Men, all of this was certainly true. With superstar George Clooney directing and acting alongside Matt Damon, Kate Blanchett, and American treasure Bill Murray, among others, The Monuments Men was almost a guaranteed hit when it was released in February 2014. But if your knowledge of the incredible individuals known as The Monuments Men stems only from this movie, well, then I'm sorry. And I can say with no disrespect to Mr. Clooney and his team, this cinematic take is a well-meaning but saccharine mess. The true story of the men and women who risked their own lives to save thousands of works of art is far more fascinating, dangerous, and important, even today. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. And today we're sharing the true story of the Monuments Men, a team of elite curators, art historians, professors, and art professionals without whom some of Europe's greatest treasures would have been destroyed during the darkest days of World War II. Welcome to the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. The term Monuments Men is a really catchy moniker for the myriad individuals who risked life and limb for the good of cultural property. But really, it limits the vision of what this intrepid team did, as well as who they were. They didn't simply take care to preserve monuments, as we typically think of them, a statue, building, or a structure produced in commemoration of an important event or person. Their job was to safeguard anything of historical or significant cultural value, not just architecture, and yes, monuments, but also paintings, sculptures, books, manuscripts, prints, and drawings. The key reason that the name Monuments Men came into being is because it became a quick and easy way to shorten the name of the department that these individuals worked for, the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Program. And really, it just sounds way cooler than MFAA, though that acronym was, and still is, hugely in use. And right off the bat, we should make it clear that the Monuments Men weren't just men. There were women who were closely involved and instrumental to the rescue efforts as well. But... I guess the term, the monuments people, doesn't have that ring to it. And I certainly do love a good use of alliteration. One of the things that especially interests me about the Monuments Men is that it was really a small group of people self-tasked with the job of managing the safety of the world's great artistic and cultural treasures. 
On the last episode of the Art Curious Podcast, we talked about the Ghost Army, which effectually numbered 1,500 servicemen working to impersonate tens of thousands of their wartime counterparts. But for the Monuments Men, the hope of preventing the destruction of invaluable works of art spread across the world, but specifically focused in Europe, it all rested on the shoulders of less than 400 civilians and servicemen. That's nothing. And yet what they were able to pull off was really extraordinary. But how and when did it all start? As we have mentioned numerous times throughout this season, the Second World War was well underway by the time the U.S. officially entered battle. This long lead time effectively meant that many historians, engineers, scientists, and military professionals were able to observe the war and its effects long before being called to both the metaphorical and physical front lines. Among the individuals observing the war from the sidelines were concerned art professionals, historians, museum directors, and professors who watched with worried eyes as bombings destroyed cities by the dozens and Nazi soldiers, under Hitler's orders, pilfered priceless paintings. Try saying that five times fast, by the way. In early 1943, they had had enough. Representatives from the American Council of Learned Societies and the American Defense Harvard Group, in conjunction with museum representatives, such as the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Francis Taylor, all made their way to Washington to air their grievances to Congress. As one of the co-founders of the Monuments Men, George Stout, wrote in a 1942 proposal, quote, in areas of bombardment and by fire are monuments cherished by the people whose countrysides or towns, churches, shrines, statues, pictures, many kinds of works. Some of these may be destroyed, some damaged. All risk further injury, looting, or destruction." Unquote. It was no longer time to just stand by and witness the potential ruination of humanity's cultural treasures and the wiping away of its history. It was time to step in and do something about it. But it is always easier said than done. In the case of Taylor, Stout, and the folks from the ACLS, they knew that a brain trust of artsy, smarty-pants types could only go so far. Their efforts to support and protect works of art needed to be backed by military might in order to actively achieve something. Thankfully, FDR agreed, and the president established the American Commission for the Protection and Salvage of Artistic and Historical Monuments in War Areas on June 23, 1943. That mouthful is what ultimately became the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives Commission, a multinational allied effort. Though American-run and organized, the MFAA wasn't limited just to American participants. Approximately 15 allied countries had representatives in the MFAA throughout its run in the 1940s. Together, these Monuments men and women were recruited to search for looted cultural treasures, assess damage, and prevent future obliteration to both movable objects like paintings and immovable ones like churches. Rightfully, many organizations around the world were providing and working for humanitarian aid. And here, finally, was a small but dedicated group of people hoping to do the same for the world's best works of art. As you might imagine, the MFAA employee would be on the move, always heading off to the site of the most recent battle, or to a museum seen as being too close to a front line. But not all Monuments men were required to be directly in contact with the art itself. Several members of the commission were also tasked with educating Allied troops about art in order to make sure that they would purposefully avoid its unintentional destruction in the line of duty. 
This is noted in an item line from the Army's historical archives as, quote, interesting the troops by lectures or otherwise, unquote. By educating members of the military about the significance of the artworks or monuments that they might encounter in the line of duty, the hope would be that they would be careful with them. And it wasn't only these lectures that the monuments men provided. The department also developed a special series of aerial maps designed to pinpoint areas of historic and artistic interest throughout Europe so that pilots, bombers, and especially other air personnel could avoid them. These efforts were quiet and are pretty unshowy compared to the exploits depicted in the Clooney film, but they produced a very important outcome, which was that they were able to minimize any potential damages by American soldiers to artworks or things of important cultural heritage. Thus, the workload and the goals of the MFAA were eased with this peace of mind and the ability to focus firmly on the axis. Not that it always went so well. Architect and professor Ralph W. Hammett, a member of the Monuments Men's Communications Unit, known as COMZ, wrote of his experiences of the war in the January 1946 issue of the College Art Journal. There, he stated, quote, Occasionally, officers were found who were unwilling to take the responsibility for protection of valuable works of art. These were forced to move on. Sometimes our soldiers were not warned of the value of their surroundings in time, and in spite of directives and orders, they often installed themselves first and consulted us afterwards." Unquote. Such educational endeavors were tricky for those members of the MFAA who were coming from a layperson's point of view and had no military experience. Luckily, straddling that line came easy to George Stout, who, by the way, was fictionalized by George Clooney as the character Frank Stokes in the 2014 film. Stout had the art cred from his work as an art conservator at Harvard's renowned Fogg Art Museum, but he also had the military chops too. He was not only a World War I vet, but he enlisted in the Navy at the beginning of 1943 before transferring into what would become the MFAA. He was thus the whole package, someone with a strong background in fine art who would be able to keenly assess and repair damages while simultaneously thinking and acting with a soldier's mind in the face of danger. And indeed, it seemed that Stout, fueled by these two strengths, really found his mission to inspire others to work alongside him to think about the preservation of cultural artifacts in the face of the worst war in recorded history. Naturally, his concern for these artifacts began on a more local level. Like other museum professionals of the time, he was worried that an airstrike or bombing on U.S. soil would destroy his country's own collections. So he began distributing pamphlets and held seminars aimed at museum officials to ensure that they would be able to take proper care of the artworks in case of emergency. But soon, Stout began to think bigger and beyond his home continent. An obvious beginning for the MFAA's efforts was to secure and return items that were quote unquote, relocated by the Nazis. As we discussed in episode 26 about Hitler's Führer Museum, multiple agencies were set up under Hitler's orders that targeted both cultural institutions and individuals throughout occupied Europe, removing thousands of valuable artworks, furniture, archival documents, and more with the intention of presenting them to Adolf Hitler for his own gains and his much longed for museum, as well as for that of other Nazi higher-ups. While some of the greatest gains were presented directly to the Führer as gifts, the vast majority of works stolen by the Nazis an estimated 40,000 pieces in all, were scattered in various strongholds throughout the continent, 
in a castle here, in a fortress there, and most famously, in salt mines. Now, I will never advocate for the Nazis in any way, shape, or form, but once again, I'll be the first to admit that they weren't dummies. Their selection of salt mines as repositories for their loot wasn't just because of their remoteness that would keep them safe from possible Allied discovery or eradication, but also because the climate of such caverns was consistently cool and dry. Therefore, the delicate treasures housed there were maintained perfectly in terms of the environment, even if they were hastily stored or piled. On top of all that, the Nazis were nothing if not great documentarians, and they kept meticulous notes about their hall in each location. Ironically enough, the attention and care that the Nazis provided to these works of art would eventually make the job of the monuments men that much easier. Less damage occurred, so less conservation needed to be done, and the records of the loot made it much faster to identify and return artworks to their rightful homes. Coming up next after the break, the biggest salt mine art repository in Europe, and a special callback to the very first episode of Art Curious. Stay with us. Do you want to help support the show and keep it going? Not only can you donate to us on our website, but you can also benefit from a very special offer. For listeners of the Art Curious podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their awesome service. Two books that are currently fascinating me are Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History, in that order, by Bridget Quinn, and The Art of Rivalry, Four Friendships, Betrayals, and Breakthroughs in Modern Art, by Sebastian Smee. You'll find these, as well as the biggest bestsellers like Turtles All the Way Down by John Green or What Happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton, and thousands more. And for every free trial, the Art Curious podcast gets a little kickback, which is so incredibly appreciated and goes a long way to keep us going. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash artcurious. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash artcurious for your free audiobook. Welcome back to Art Curious. In 1938, Austria was annexed as part of the German Third Reich, and with that came access to a vast series of salt mines that had been integral to the land for over 3,000 years. And yes, you heard me right. One particular mine, the Hallein Mine, just on the outskirts of Salzburg, had been worked consistently since Celtic tribes decamped there over 2,600 years ago and had begun profiting from the so-called white gold. Salt. That, by the way, is why Salzburg has that particular name, which translates literally to Salt Fortress, because salt had been the city's driving force for millennia. And towards the end of World War II, this salt mine became one of the last bastions of the Nazi party as government officials, including bigwigs like Holocaust mastermind Adolf Eichmann and SS commander August Eigruber, began retreating there en masse and bringing their riches with them. And the best place to hide their goodies and especially their cache of stolen art, was the mine at Altusay. The Altusay mine might ring some bells for some longtime listeners of the podcast, because this was a purported location of the Mona Lisa during the Second World War, which we discussed in our very first episode of this show. The mine complex at Altusay as a safeguard location wasn't actually initiated by the Nazis. It was initiated by Austrians who weren't associated with the SS or the Nazis whatsoever. As early as 1943, 
Austrian museums and churches began moving their artistic treasures to the mine for legitimate safekeeping, rightly assuming that they would otherwise be in harm's way. But by the following year, the Nazis had completely taken over, with the total number of looted paintings alone ballooning to 4,700 items, mostly coming in via the Sonderauftrag Lands, or the Lands Special Commission, which we talked about briefly in episode 26. The majority of these works were specifically meant to be housed in the Führer Museum, Hitler's impossible vision for his hometown art institution as the greatest museum in the world. And in the last year of the war, that number had risen to over 6,500 paintings and an additional 6,000 other types of items, including sculpture, drawings, coins, furniture, and rare books, with most destined for the glorification of Hitler himself. Among these purloined images were two iconic works of art feared lost forever. One an incredible rare sculpture, and the other a gorgeous altarpiece, both stolen by the Nazis from sacred spaces. The first was the only work by Michelangelo to ever leave Italy during the artist's lifetime, his so-called Bruges Madonna, a rather modest sculpture, only about 80 inches tall, featuring a small, somber Mary and her chubby toddler, Jesus, braced against her left leg. Compared with the heft and monumentality of Michelangelo's David, created at roughly the same time, this marble sculpture is intimate and surprisingly solemn in a way that even the vast Vatican Pietà just isn't. This was certainly recognized by the Madonna's original purchasers, who may have had the intention of installing it as part of a larger altarpiece for the Church of Our Lady in Bruges, Belgium, where it had lived a rather comfortable life since 1514. Well, except for a moment where it was declared part of the Napoleonic Empire and shipped off to France, but that is an art-curious tale for another day. On the night of September 6, 1944, the Madonna and Child were again removed from their home. But this time, it was by German occupiers fleeing the city, and they had smuggled it out in the back of a Red Cross truck. It was later described by author Lynn Nichols in her wonderful 1995 book, The Rape of Europa, as looking like a, quote, large Smithfield ham. Unquote. Wrapped up and swaddled, it was ferried away into the night and onwards to Altusay. Altusay's other most famous denizen was the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, also known as the Ghent Altarpiece, created in the early 15th century and attributed to Flemish master Jan van Eyck and his brother, Hubert. The scope of this work is incredibly complex and large, especially considering the modest Madonna that we've just referenced. When the wings of this altarpiece were fully opened, it extended 14 feet tall and 15 feet wide and has been presented at St. Bavos Cathedral in Ghent, Belgium, since its creation. It is a true turning point in Northern European art history, what many scholars believe to represent the junction between medieval artistic traditions and that exacting depiction of nature that the Renaissance would bring. It was lauded for centuries. And so, of course, it would be rightly sought out for Hitler's art museum. Hermann Goering, too, also wanted it for his personal collection. And thus, a tussle of seesawing ownership ensued, with this incredible altarpiece stuck in the middle. It turned out that the adoration of the mystic lamb had been stolen multiple times throughout its lifetime, and not just in World War II, as art historian and theft expert Noah Charney has elucidated. But this theft has proved, thankfully, to be the last. And it, too, was shepherded secretly off to Altusay. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. How the Altuse mine was discovered by the Monuments Men is truly a wonderful stroke of luck. According to Smithsonian Magazine in February 2014, it was by means of a toothache that the Allies learned of its existence. As reported by Jim Morrison, the writer, not that Jim Morrison, Monuments Men Robert Posey had a serious toothache and sought out a dentist to remedy the situation. As Morrison writes, quote, The dentist he found introduced him to his son-in-law, who was hoping to earn safe passage for his family to Paris, even though he had helped Hermann Goering, Hitler's second-in-command, steal trainload after trainload of art. The son-in-law told them of the location of Goering's collection as well as Hitler's stash at Altusse, unquote. So the Altusse mine, one of the largest stolen art repositories in Europe, had thus been discovered by the Allies. But how were the Allies going to access it away from the prying eyes of Eigruber and his cronies? And how were they going to rescue all of that art? Truly, it's incredible that the Altusse mine remained intact at all because Eigruber nearly had it bombed to smithereens. Smithsonian Magazine reports that one of George Stout's earliest discoveries about the mine was that Eigruber had been working under Hitler's so-called Nero Decree, which stated, in part, quote, All military transport and communication facilities, industrial establishments and supply depots, as well as anything else of value within Reich territory which could be in any way used by the enemy immediately or within the foreseeable future for the prosecution of the war, shall be destroyed, unquote. To Eigruber, this was clearly and simply stating that all to say and everything in it should be demolished rather than ending up in Allied hands. So as the monuments men crept closer to the mine, Eigruber ordered that eight crates be moved to the center of the mine complex. These crates were marked with warnings, proclaiming, Marble, do not drop, but actually contained 1,100-pound bombs, and Eigruber was ready to set them off. The strange thing is that we actually might have Hitler to thank, at least in part, for the fact that the mine was not destroyed. Being that the large part of the work stored in the Altusse mine were destined for the Führer Museum, his pet project, Hitler was reluctant to let that particular mine be bombed out. So he countered Eigruber's orders. However, Hitler committed suicide on April 30, 1945. So Eigruber thought, great, let's go back to my original plan. Luckily for us, though, that did not go through. Not only did the Nazi officials think that Eigruber's plans were unorthodox at best and plain ridiculous at worst, but there was also significant backlash when local miners learned of the potential destruction of the mine and were horrified that their millennia-old livelihood could be coming to an end. So Eigruber backed down, but not before local miners made one significant change. The bombs were removed, but in their place, miners swapped in some small explosive charges that were subsequently ignited. They didn't destroy the artworks inside, but they did seal off the entrances to the mine and thus kept everything safely stored inside. Eigruber and his team, then, could not go in to order the destruction of any artwork ever again. And in May of 1945, the Monuments Men arrived, and some truly serious work began. George Stout and the Monuments Men assumed that they had a significant amount of time to clear out the Altusse mine, both excavating their way in and also to catalog and pack the treasures inside for return and restitution. 
Especially after Germany surrendered on VE Day, May 8, 1945, the monument's men collectively sighed and thought, great, the war is over and we can just take our time with this process. But it wasn't meant to be because there was great concern that in the vast divvying of control of Europe that occurred amongst the Allies in the immediate post-war period, Russia might gain control of the region surrounding Altusay. The monuments men were told to hurry up to make sure that the world's most beloved artworks didn't end up in Joseph Stalin's hands. They were given less than two months to ferry the most important of the 12,000 pieces out of Altusay over to a central collection point in Munich. Remember that the Monuments Men was a teeny tiny secret operation and one with a minimum amount of resources and manpower on hand. Asking that Altusay be cleared out of his most important assets by July 1st of 1945 was too tall an order. And yet, they did it, albeit just a couple days late. They struggled through 18-hour workdays, a shortage of food, and uncooperative rainy weather. But they did it. And on July 11th, George Stout accompanied two very special passengers, the Bruges Madonna and the Ghent Altarpiece, back to Munich. According to Lynn Nichols, in the year that Stout spent working in Europe for the Monuments Men, he took only one and a half days off. This episode of our podcast by no means covers the vast importance of what the Monuments Men did. Besides what they did at Altusay, this group spent most of 1945 seeking out more than 1,000 troves containing an estimated 5 million pieces of artwork and cultural items stolen or displaced during the war. And they continued their work for years after. And then the process of art restitution, which we'll be discussing in an upcoming episode, is still going on today. The Monuments Men were active not only in Europe, but also in Asia as well. And I didn't get to tell you about one of the most incredible figures involved with the Monuments Men, Rose Valland, a French art historian and curator at the Jeu de Palme Museum in Paris, who single-handedly saved thousands of works of art by secretly cataloging Nazi looting. But that's an entire episode for another season of the Art Curious podcast. And don't worry, I definitely want to tell you all about her. Many of those who were involved in the Monuments Men during World War II were humbled by their work, Stout included. But many years after the war, when the work of the Monuments Men was finally declassified and revealed, there was a small amount of pushback. Why would the Allies have spent money and wasted manpower, some said, on saving works of art instead of human lives? In a 1978 oral history of the Monuments Men, George Stout succinctly and beautifully explained their impetus, stating, quote, These monuments are not just pretty things, not merely valued signs of man's creative power. They are expressions of faith, and they stand for man's struggle to relate himself to his past and his God, unquote. For an art historian and curator like me, there's no question of the value of the amazing work that the Monuments Men did. But people are still sometimes surprised or confused by the story. In researching this episode, I stumbled across a travel blog, of all things, by a writer and humanitarian named Roger Hansen. In one post from 2014, he mentioned spending time in the presence of the Bruges Madonna on a trip through Belgium, which allowed him to ponder the rationale and the existence of the Monuments Men. And I found the final words of his blog post perfectly moving. He writes, quote, Is a work of art worth a human life? Before including a sidebar about the fact that two of the original Monuments Men did die, tragically, in their service. But then he concluded, writing, quote, For me, yes, it's worth it but I've never been asked to sacrifice my life, 
unquote. But people did sacrifice their lives, and so many of them did so not because they volunteered to do so, or wanted to, but because they were ordered to. And as they held on to whatever remained of their lives, they made art about it. That's coming up next time on the Art Curious Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Research assistance is by Stephanie Pryor and social media help by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition spaces, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. This means that you can donate to the show and it is fully tax deductible. And that helps us keep doing what we're doing. Follow the donate links at our website for more details and thank you. Speaking of website, you can go there for images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes. That site is artcuriouspodcast.com. And you can contact us via the website, email us at artcuriouspodcast at gmail.com, and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. And then do not forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history of the World War II era.